Hello and welcome to IFG Live. My name is Akash Pound and I am pleased to be chairing today's discussion at the Institute for Government or the Virtual Institute for Government, A Nation Divided, What Does Scotland's Constitutional Future Hold? So thank you all for joining us. This is the week when the future of Scotland and its place in the Union has returned to the centre of the national conversation. On Monday, Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister of Scotland, spoke speaking at uh, SNP conference, promised to never give up on Scottish democracy and argued that momentum was on the side of those who favour independence for Scotland. And then on Tuesday and Wednesday, we had two days of hearings at the United Kingdom Supreme Court, where five justices of the court considered the question of whether the Scottish Parliament can hold an independence referendum, Scottish Government wants to do so next October, um, without the authorisation of the Westminster Parliament. And the court also spent quite a lot of time discussing a narrower procedural question, which is whether it is even legitimate for the court to answer this question at this point, given no legislation to hold a referendum has yet been passed by the Scottish Parliament. And we're going to explore both the sides of, of the court case, as well as wider questions about the, the, the possible future scenarios for Scotland. So today at the Institute for Government, we'll be uh, discussing all these issues um, with an expert panel of four speakers who I am grateful to for joining. So um, I'll now quickly introduce them and then we'll get the conversation started. So first um, in alphabetical order, and I think first who we'll come to in the event is Professor Aileen McHarg. Aileen is Professor of Public Law and Human Rights at Durham Law School, uh, formerly of Strathclyde, Glasgow and Bristol universities. Aileen has written widely on UK and Scottish constitutional and administrative law. She also even got a name check or one of her articles uh, got a name check in the Supreme Court this week, which I think for an academic lawyer is a bit like scoring in the Champions League final or something like that. So <laughs> congratulations. Um, second panelist um, that uh, we'll be looking forward to hearing from is Jim Murphy. Jim was a member of parliament for East Renfrewshire between 1997 and 2015. I think the constituency changed name, but for that region anyway, that area. Uh, Jim served in government under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in various roles, including as Secretary of State for Scotland. He was then in shadow cabinet in a couple of positions and quite briefly leader of Scottish Labour. Um, Jim is now managing director of Arden Strategies, the advisory firm. Third, welcome to Stephen Noon. Stephen was a senior policy advisor to First Minister of Scotland, Alex Salmond for a few years, and he was also senior strategist for the Yes Scotland campaign in 2014 in the, during the, the first or so far only independence referendum um, in Scotland. And Stephen is now studying uh, or post conducting postgrad research into devolution at the University of Edinburgh. And fourth, very pleased to be joined by Professor Adam Tompkins. Uh, Adam is now John Miller Chair of Public Law at Glasgow University. Um, he returned to academia after spending five years as a member of the Scottish Parliament, 
representing the Glasgow region for the Scottish Conservative Party. And he was all, also for, I think, much of that time, the party's spokesperson on constitutional affairs. So thank you to all four of you for being with us today. I'm really looking forward to your thoughts on these issues. So um, we're going to now kick off. I'm going to put a series of questions to our panelists, facilitate a bit of a conversation. And um, I'll also be very keen to involve members of the audience. So please do start submitting questions you might have for the panel as a whole or for any uh, particular panelists using the Q&A function on Microsoft Teams. And then I'll uh, put them to the panel on your behalf. Um, just a couple of quick housekeeping notes. Uh, so the Institute for Government is live tweeting this uh, discussion from the account at IFG events using the hashtag IFG Scotland, I believe. Uh, we're also recording this and uh, as both in video and audio forms, the discussion will be uploaded to our web website as a podcast and so on. So uh, let's get started. And I would like to uh, first of all come to uh, Aileen and um, if you may, Aileen, if you would, um, could you just pre first briefly explain uh, to us and the, and the audience in non-technical terms, albeit that <laughs> some of it is quite technical, as we know, uh, what were the questions that the court were asked, that has been asked to, to consider? Okay, well, I'll, I'll do my best to keep it non-technical. Um, so as you said, there were two questions that the court had to decide. There's the question that the Lord Advocate actually referred to the court, which was uh, whether the Scottish Parliament has the competence by itself without the agreement of the UK government to enact a bill authorising a second independence referendum. And that all turns on whether or not such a bill would relate to the reserve matter of the union. So there was lots of discussion about well, what, what exactly does relates to mean? Uh, the Scotland Act tells us in order to answer that question, we have to look at the purpose and the effect of the bill in question. So again, there was discussion around how exactly do you characterise the purpose of the bill? What kinds of effects are important, bearing in mind that this would be an advisory referendum, i.e. one which wouldn't have any necessary uh, legal effects beyond the the organisation and conduct of the of the vote itself. So that was the question that the Lord Advocate referred. But there was the second question about whether actually she was entitled to make the reference. And that question arose because this reference was made in, a, in an unusual way, relying on a pretty obscure provision in a schedule to the Scotland Act that's never been used before. So, so typically we would expect these kind of questions about the, the legality of devolved legislation to come to the, the courts in one of two ways. So either once a bill has been passed by the Parliament, there's a four week period before it goes to Royal Assent where one or other of the law officers can refer it direct to the Supreme Court. Or if that doesn't happen and it gets Royal Assent and becomes an act, then a range of people who have an interest can uh, can challenge it before the courts. But in this case, we're talking about a draft bill that hasn't even been introduced into the Parliament. The reason why it hasn't been introduced, though, is because the Lord Advocate has 
doubts about whether or not it's within the competence of the parliament, if she cannot clearly advise the, the ministers in charge of the bill that it's within competence, then the minister can't introduce it into parliament. So she was saying, well, yes, she recognises this is an unusual procedure, but uh, if she can't refer it via this mechanism, there may be no other way of getting the, this important legal issue uh, resolved by the courts because there may never be a bill uh, which can then be you know, uh, referred in the ordinary way. Yeah, so essentially she was asking the courts, please help me out, give me some guidance. Should I give this bill at the point when it might be introduced the green light, so to speak, advise yeah. the ministers that, that it can be passed by the by the parliament? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. OK, great. Thanks. Thanks, Aileen. That was that was terrifically clear and concise. Um, Adam, uh, I know you watched the uh, the hearings closely. I think you watched every minute of them, you said to me before we went live. Um, so, I mean, what, what what was your overall impression? Were you surprised by any of the arguments made in court or by indeed the, the, the focus of the justices in their questioning? Uh, no, I, I really wasn't. I think it was all um, uh, in, entirely predictable. Um, uh, and um, the overwhelming focus on both days of argument, um, uh, whether it was the Lord Advocate on her feet or the UK's lawyer, Sir James Ed, on his feet, the, 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 the dominant focus was this issue of process. Um, uh, the justices uh, quite notably just sat back very politely uh, and listened to the arguments about substance. The arguments about substance are the arguments that Aileen just um, referred to as being arguments about whether um, uh, an independence referendum bill in Holyrood would relate to the reserved matter of the of the union. Now that, that's a that's a contestable issue. Um, uh, there are plausible arguments going uh, both in favour of the view that such a bill would relate to reserved matters and indeed that such a bill would not relate to reserve matters. It's a contestable issue and it was notable that all five judges on the panel uh, intervened not at all on any of either the Lord Advocates or Sir James Eady's submissions on that contestable point, which is a, look, only a fool would predict how the Supreme Court is going to decide a case that judgment uh, in, in, uh, when the judgment's not yet been handed handed down. Much easier to predict how they're going to decide cases after you've read the judgment. Um, but uh, um, uh, and so I'm not making a prediction about what the Supreme Court will do, but all of the messages that you could glean from what it was that the justices were interested in, in the two days of oral uh, hearings, um, uh, would indicate uh, that they're um, going to decide this on on process. And I, I don't think this means that we'll never get to the, the substance. It just means that we won't get to the substance yet. Because I think what will, you know, if the court rules, um, and I put no higher than that, if the court rules that this reference was made by the uh, Lord Advocate prematurely uh, and, uh, you know, um, that it was not an appropriate use of the Schedule 6 um, reference procedure, then um, that does not mean that Holyrood can't enact this legislation. It means that some hurdles have to be overcome before Holyrood can enact this legislation, but Holyrood can enact this legislation. So, for example, at the moment, it's a government bill. Um, but the government could hand it to a sympathetic backbench MSP and then it becomes a member's bill. And then the Lord Advocate does not have to give legal advice on whether 
uh, the bill would be within competence. That if, if, the, if there's a member of the Scottish Parliament that is clearly of the view that uh, this bill would be within Holyrood's competence, then that member can introduce it, making the requisite, requisite certif um, certification of that, of, of that legal intention without the Lord Advocate having to do anything at all. And then what will happen is that the uh, um, uh, legislation would proceed through its normal um, uh, stages in the Holyrood process. It would doubtless be enacted because there is a pro-independence uh, uh, referendum majority in the Scottish Parliament. Indeed, there's a pro-independence majority uh, in the Scottish Parliament. And at that point, after enactment, the ordinary Scotland Act procedures would no doubt kick into place and the UK's law officers, namely the Advocate General for Scotland and the Attorney General, would refer the matter to the Supreme Court for mm. a definitive ruling, which at that point the Supreme Court could not, as it were, wriggle out of uh, on this substantive question of whether this legislation, having been enacted, does in fact relate to the reserve matter of the Union uh, or, or not. The, so the white, white, I mean, that's from the outside perspective, that must just look completely baffling. You know, if the Supreme Court knows that it's going to have to deal with this issue eventually anyway, why wouldn't it deal with it now? Well, the answer to that is a really important answer, actually, in constitutional terms. The answer to that is we don't have a bill yet. And the Supreme Court exists to make rulings on what the law is. The Supreme Court does not exist to give advisory opinions about what the legal consequences would be were an unintroduced bill to be passed by the Scottish Parliament unamended in its current form. Um, and, and that's the critical difference. And, you know, yeah. yes, it's a difference of process, not a difference of substance, but so much of constitutional law is about process and not about substance, inc including this week's case. Yeah. And is there, yeah, Alien, I'll come to you in a sec. Um, just one follow up. I mean, in terms of the potential uh, ways that the decision could go, is there a kind of um, almost like a double rejection scenario whereby the court says rejects the reference and so denies the the case on procedural grounds, but also I think in legal terms in obiter right as a sort of aside um, says, but if you do come back, it's quite clear to us that this would be denied on um, on substantive grounds, which I think is what kind of happened with a previous case in the Scottish Court of Session, the Keatings case. Is that is that one scenario? Kind of, as well, it, it, that's possible, um, yeah. Akash. That's that's possible. But whether the Supreme Court does say anything about that at this point uh, or not, none, none of us knows. I mean, none of us knows what the Supreme Court's going to say, but the, sure. all, all you can do is rely on what on what you've observed over the last uh, couple of days. And what you've observed over the last couple of days are five justices in the Supreme Court very anxiously interrogating submissions on both sides about what the appropriate procedures are. And yeah. those same five justices very politely sitting back and listening without any intervention or interruption whatsoever on what are deeply contestable submissions um, about the substance of the issue or whether such a bill would in fact uh, or would in law relate uh, to the reserve matter of the union uh, or, or not. And from that, one has to draw one's own conclusions. Yeah, thanks. OK, Aileen, you wanted to come back in. Has Aileen frozen on us? I believe we may have temporarily lost um, lost her. Hopefully, Eddie will be back soon. Um, in the meantime, um, I mean, J Jim, uh, you're not 
a pro professor of law, but I think you've been following the case and the arguments closely as have most people. So, I mean, what's been your observation of the way the, these different arguments have uh, been 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 made in, in the court and, and more, more widely in, in, in sort of public debate? Yes, you are right, Akash. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I was involved in the passing of the original legislation back in 19... 98 when as a newly elected member of parliament we introduced the scotland bill that became the scotland act which then established the devolved parliament i'm surprised by the entire process i'm surprised we've got this far in the process i'm not disputing people's rights to take this process but i'm surprised because the supreme court has been asked to rule on a piece of legislation that hasn't even been introduced into the scottish parliament on an issue which Scotland's Lord Advocate is unwilling to certify as lawful and is reduced to arguing that they want a consultative referendum with zero legal impact. I'm also surprised that the SNP then, to some extent, big-footed their own law officer by making their own submission to the, the, the Supreme Court. And finally, I'm, I'm just bamboozled that the argument that a referendum on splitting up the United Kingdom doesn't relate to the United Kingdom. I think it's legally ingenious in the way it's being argued, but I'm not convinced because the test in the, the Scotland Act, and then think it, I think it's in Schedule 5 of the Scotland Act, is does the matter relate to a reserved matter? And on the basis that the union of the Crown, the Union of the Kingdoms of Scotland and England and issues relating to the Parliament of the United Kingdom are reserved to the UK Parliament. I think by any reasonable test, this then relates um, to a reserved matter. And on that basis, I'm surprised we've come this far. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, the test is whether it relates to any reserved matter such as the Union in terms of its purpose and its effect and a lot of the argument on the substantive side has been well what is the purpose i mean the scottish government case as i understand it is that the purpose of a referendum would simply be to ascertain the views of the scottish people and indeed that's you know on the face of the bill the uk government i think in line with what you were saying argue it's sort of self-evident that's the way that the the lawyer put it for them that the purpose ultimately is is of course to secure independence so so the bill should be blocked for those reasons um glad to see aliens back um uh, uh, Steve, Stephen, did you want to come in on this because um i think i mean jim's just been commenting on the the scottish government strategy um of of trying to bring this case to to the court before passing a bill um making these arguments in in perhaps um well creative ways. I mean, what, what, what do you think of the, the Scottish government strategy? Uh, I'd be interested to hear what Aileen and Adam have to say on, on, on this reflection, but the, the, the more constitutional this case is, the more chance the Scottish government has of, of winning. I mean, that, that seems to be the, 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 the message from the SNP's um, submission. Uh, if the Supreme Court, UK Supreme Court, uh, treats this case in a similar way to the Canadian Supreme Court, the Quebec secession referendum, you begin to open and bring in constitutional, wider constitutional principles which might uh, support the Scottish government case. 
so perhaps doing it this way, uh, bringing it in before the legislation has been produced, uh, serves to constitutionalise the issue, takes it away from the, uh, you know, the, the, the ordinary interpretation of legislation that uh, you know might might be the the, the norm, and begins to allow arguments to be made around. Okay, well, what is the route for uh, this decision to be taken? Um, I mean, there's a fundamental constitutional question here. You know, nationalist unionist. I think we have worked on the basis that the UK is a a union state. It's a a union by consent. Um, and if the judges say that the Scottish Parliament doesn't have the, the legal capacity to hold a referendum, what then becomes the route for Scotland to express that consent? Um, so that, that that is a strong constitutional slash political argument. Uh, it's a sort of argument that I think would appeal more to a Canadian style Supreme Court. Um, but in a sense, that is perhaps the best card for uh, you know constitutional political reasons for the the Scottish government SNP to play. Yeah, thanks. And um, so so um, Aileen, yeah, glad glad you've rejoined us um, on the question of the the SNP's separate submission. So so to be clear to those who haven't followed so closely, there were the, the two governments made their submissions. The two governments were then represented in court, but separately the SNP made a written submission um, to the court, making a slightly, well, actually quite a different argument um, to the Scottish government, the SNP as a party, um, on why in its view a referendum should be allowed to happen and they appealed to the idea of national self-determination and democratic principle. Um, do you want to say anything about that um, intervention and whether you think that's likely to carry any weight at all? Yeah, thanks. C can you hear me now? Yes, know. thanks. I don't know what happened earlier. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, this, the, the, the points that Stephen has been making, I think probably illustrate some of the limitations of constitutional adjudication in our type of only partially codified constitution. And we saw the same kind of limitations um, in the in the first Miller case where the court can take account of some aspects of the constitution to the extent that these are legalised. But the kind of broader political aspects of the constitution uh, really uh, get a you know, get a look in. So the SNP's submission I thought was was quite interesting in that they've worked quite hard to show why these broader questions of self-determination could be relevant to the determination of the legal question. So they were they were arguing that these were principles sh that should be taken into account in the interpretation of the Scotland Act. So no kind of freestanding uh, reliance on a right to self-determination or anything like, like that. It's just about uh, trying to get these into the, the 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 interpretation of the Scotland Act. Now that was that was the kind of strength of their submission. The weakness of their submission though is that in in having to make those broader principles legally relevant, you narrow the reliance that can be made on them. So the right to self-determination in international law, for instance, almost certainly does not apply in this situation. If we follow the Supreme Court of Canada, um, in its Quebec secession reference, they drew a very clear distinction between the right to internal self-determination and the right to external self-determination, external self-determination being the right to secede, and said quite clearly that, that a, a people 
that has a high degree of internal self-determination doesn't also get the right to external self-determination. External self-determination is only for those genuinely oppressed um, minority groups uh, that, that have no internal self-determination. So I think that was the problem there. I, I think I think those arguments, therefore, are unlikely to uh, to play much role in the Supreme Court's reasoning. I think what will be more interesting is whether they say anything at all about them or just kind of <laughs> pretend they didn't happen. I mean, they could say problematic things about those uh, about those arguments. So so from the SNP's point of view, it might be better if nothing is said on those broader points. Mm, OK, thanks. Stephen and Adam both want to come in on that point. Stephen, you first. But maybe again, the question I would have for the, the legal experts is um, the Canadian case obviously put duties on both the Quebec and the Canadian governments to, to engage in a certain way if there was a, uh, a democratic expression towards the session. Is there a chance that the court could express a responsibility uh, on the behalf of the you know, the two governments to engage in this, to, to actually find a legal path forward? I mean, if, if um, I come back I, on that, I would have said absolutely sure. not. I think they will avoid that kind of uh, uh, broad constitutional but political intervention um, as far as possible. They will stick to the the technical legal issues. And, and Lord Reed made that quite clear at the beginning of, mm. uh, of the hearing on Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, he seemed to do so. Adam. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Aileen about about, about all of that um, as as it happens. Um, I I think that the entire thrust of the Supreme Court's case law on the law of devolution as it relates to not only Scotland but also Wales and even mainly also to Northern Ireland is to avoid all of these broader questions of you know what you might call fundamental constitutional principle and to focus with you know the sort of you know forensic discipline that we saw yesterday in his uh, submissions by Sir James Eady on the on the minutiae of what the legislation enacts and that gets me back to something that Jim Murphy said which I just wanted to come come back to because um Jim uh, expressed what um you know a lot of people uh, expressed to me which is just bafflement puzzlement as to how it could even be plausibly arguable that a referendum about ending the union um, does not somehow in legal terms relate uh, to the union. So can I just say something, Akash, about, about, about yes, how please. it can be plausibly argued um, that um, uh, an independence referendum uh, uh, does not relate to the union and that therefore an independence referendum bill could plausibly be passed by the Holyrood Parliament without Westminster's consent. And the, and, and the key to this lies in those two terms that a Aileen talked about in her first uh, contribution, which are the, the terms purpose and effect. So whether a um, provision of Holyrood legislation relates to a reserved matter such as the union depends, as Aileen correctly said, on the purpose of that uh, legislation having regard, amongst other matters, to its effect in all the circumstances. So you could you could say that the purpose of an independence referendum is not to terminate the union. The purpose of an independence referendum, the legal purpose of an independence referendum, is simply to ask the people of Scotland their view about whether the Scottish government should pursue 
negotiations with the United Kingdom um, about the severing of the union. So if the purpose of the bill, if the legal purpose, we know what the political purpose of the SNP is, but the political purpose of the SNP is distinguishable in law from the legal purpose of the legislation. And if the legal purpose of the legislation is, this is a big if, this is a big if, if the legal purpose of the legislation is simply to consult the people of Scotland, well, consulting the people of Scotland is not a reserved matter. So the purpose of the legislation could be held to be within competence. Then you go to its effect. What are its effects in all the circumstances? And this is where the Lord Advocate's submissions were really quite striking, because she said in terms that the legal effects of even a yes vote in an independence referendum are, quote, nil. Unquote. They are of no. There are no legal effects. There are no legal effects to um, a yes vote in a in a referendum. A yes vote will not deliver independence. These aren't my words. These are the Lord Advocate's words. The Lord Advocate herself was arguing that even a yes vote in a referendum will not deliver uh, independence. Independence can be delivered in law only by enactment passed by Westminster. Right, it can't be delivered uh, by by Hollywood, um, and so you know if you define the purpose and the effect of an independence referendum in those admittedly rather arcane and narrow terms, then that's how you could run the argument plausibly. I think run the argument that as a matter of law. Um, a bill paving the way for an independence referendum uh, does not relate to the reserve matter uh, of of the, the the union. Now, if, if that argument is ever to be successful in the Supreme Court, it will have significant political consequences because what that argument will do is so hollow out the meaning of a referendum that those who don't want to take part in it can simply boycott it. Right. So yeah, what yeah. what Holyrood clearly doesn't have the the legislative competence to do is to enact without Westminster's consent, an independence referendum that looks or sounds or feels like the 2014 independence referendum, in my view. And I think yeah. Aileen and I may, may disagree about this, but in, 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 in my view, um, you know, a, 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 a referendum, because the, the 2014 referendum was understood by both sides to be determinative of the matter, right? If Scotland voted yeah. yes in 2014, Scotland would have become an independent state, independent of the UK. Now, I, I think yeah. it's difficult to argue that such a referendum doesn't relate to the union. But if you so define the purpose and effect of an independence referendum so that its purpose is simply to consult the people of Scotland and its effect in law is nil, then it can safely be boycotted by people like me and I think people like Jim who want to have nothing to do with this project. Well, can I yeah, pick up yeah, on well, that? Yeah, so uh, 20, 20, yeah, absolutely, Jim. Just, just to comment on, uh, on, on what Adam was saying. So yeah, in 2014, of course, technically, legally speaking, the referendum also had no automatic legal effect. However, it was based on a, a political agreement and the Edinburgh agreement between the two governments, which included an explicit commitment on both sides to respect and act upon the result. So, um, yeah, but as you say, without that, um, it might be easy to boycott. Um, yeah, Jim, can I, yeah, I'll bring you in now and then Aileen, I'll come to you. Yeah, just quickly on the constitutional argument, again with the health warning that neither Stephen and I are qualified constitutional lawyers, um, is that certainly from reading it, um, from reading the Act, re re reflecting um, on the passage of the Act as I did back, the, back all those years ago, and some of the Supreme Court's subsequent cases that it's, it's adjudicated on, it seems to be that whether an issue relates to a reserve matter to the UK Parliament, 
is whether it's the competence of the UK Parliament is the overarching test. And the tests on purpose and effect are ancillary tests. And again, that'll be interesting to see how the, um, the Supreme Court adjudicates on that constitutional issue um, as to the hierarchy of tests. But certainly my reading is relates to is the, has the senior status on those tests. But to come to two other points, which are slightly less, more significantly less about the constitution and more about the politics. Um, first of all, referendums don't have a f legal effect in the UK. Uh, the Brexit referendum had no legal effect. The UK Parliament could have chosen simply to have ignored it. I mean, I had the great misfortune, or, or great fortune perhaps, one of the other roles I had in government, I was the Minister for Europe that introduced the Lisbon Treaty into UK law, which then introduced the ability to, that treaty allowed countries to then leave the Union of Europe. Um, and But nevertheless, having a referendum didn't have legal effect. So it, this, I think my, my overarching view of this is that the Scottish government has asked this, the most the most senior court in the land um, to adjudicate on an issue that is just intensely political and about a pol about political rather than legal judgments. I accept admissibility is a legal test. I accept that relates to as a legal test, but the Scottish government itself has been unable to resolve whether any of these matters are legal under the terms of the 1998 Act. Um, and, in, and, a, and a, perhaps anticipating a legal challenge from a private citizen, admittedly probably a well-funded uh, uh, private citizen here in Scotland, they've yeah, taken yeah. this route instead. Yeah, okay. Um, I do, I want to move on to the politics. You started talking about that and we've got some questions coming in from the audience too. Um, Aileen, I think you had another, uh, maybe just a final quick comment on this part of the conversation? Yeah, so two things. One, I mean, Jim is right, of course, that this is a highly political issue, but, but you know, just because it's a political issue doesn't mean to say that there, there aren't legal questions to be resolved, and, and there clearly are legal questions to be resolved, so it doesn't make it inappropriate to refer those to the Supreme Court. I mean, the Lord Advocate, I think, made quite a powerful argument that the alternative is that she is the final arbiter of the legality of an independence referendum, which is constitutionally highly, highly problematic. But I wanted to pick up on on what Adam said about uh, the Lord Advocate having to 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 argue against the significance of the referendum to make her legal case. But of course, that could be said of, of the Advocate General as well, because he has had to stress the political significance of a unilateral referendum in order to make his case. If he loses, you have a load of rhetoric in his sub written submissions about how politically important the result of this of a, a referendum would be. So yeah, you know, unionists can continue to, to, to choose to boycott it if they want, but they'd be doing that in the face of the UK government's law officers uh, contradicting it and saying how politically important it would be. So that's Very what I wanted to say. Very interesting point, thanks. Um, I want to move on to kind of what happens next. We've 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 explored the issues um, at the heart of the case and and some of the different scenarios um, in terms of the decision that the court might reach. But yeah, but what 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 happens next? So I want to start um, 
by uh, coming to you, Stephen, and asking if the case, if this, if the Scottish government wins the case um, and says yes, we can uh, take the reference, and yes, a referendum can be held. The arguments that Adam set out have persuaded us. Not that Adam necessarily believes those arguments, but um, but the ones he, he put out as the way that this case can be argued. What happens next? Do we de are we definitely heading then for a October 2023 referendum? Is that feasible? You were around last time when it took a lot longer to sort of move from agreement on that a referendum would take place to actually holding a referendum in 2014. What do you think? Well, I mean, the first minister has said that that's her uh, hope and intention. Um, I, I think there are questions around the timetable. I, I think that uh, uh, that's not a, a bad thing in itself. Um, I think if the Scottish government got a yes to the referendum, that would be uh, good enough. <laughs> that would make them happy enough. Uh, and if the referendum itself was held a little bit later, uh, I think they'd be perfectly relaxed about that. I mean, my advice to them would be to actually, you know, give us some time uh, to do this referendum in a way which is uh, as as constructive and unifying as possible. Um, and you know, that requires, I think, the referendum to to come after a conversation. Um, you know, we, we can we will talk a wee bit more about what that that conversation can be like. But uh, you know, for me as a supporter of independence. It's not just essential that we become independent, but independent, but also essential that we become independent in the best possible way. And that's the way that, you know, unifies the country, pulls together, you know, 55 percent, 60 percent of people to get um, to get a yes vote. And part of that is the style of the campaign. You know, the first minister's language at the weekend and her speech around uh, a campaign of respect, compassion, love. I think has the the capacity to, uh, you know, increase the yes support, uh, but much better, in my view, would be some sort of process leading up to the referendum where a genuine cross-party Civic Scotland national conversation can take place. Mm -hmm. Thanks, uh, Adam. I think you wanted to come in. I was also going to ask you, so I'll put that put this to you at the same time. Um, in that scenario where the, the Scottish government wins. Do you think it's likely the UK government would simply legislate at Westminster to block any referendum happening? Um, only if they're completely insane, <laughs> um, uh, which they which they might be. Um, uh, I, I think that I think that that would be a, a, t a tactic um, or a strategy which would um, uh, succeed only in accelerating um, uh, um, Scotland's divorce from uh, the rest of the United Kingdom. Um, so I, I wouldn't put it past um, Truss and her advisers to think that that was a good idea because I think Truss and her advisers are very badly um, uh, mistaken about what um, unionist strategy should be. But I, I wanted to speak in support of a number of things which I think are animating Stephen's um, uh, contribution. 
to this conversation and indeed Stephen's contribution to the, to the Scottish public conversation since his return um, uh, to uh, Edinburgh a few uh, weeks ago. It's great to have you back, Stephen, because you're making some significant interventions in the uh, in the in the um, in the in the conversation, which I think are long overdue and, and very welcome, if I can say so, without destroying your um, credibility amongst your mm -hmm. your as well supporters. And that is because look, th this is a really serious point. Scotland is a divided country. Um, uh, and um, uh, it is a tribally divided country. Um, and those tribal divisions are not between left and right. They're not between leave and remain in Brexit terms. They're between yes and no. Yes and no is the fundamental dividing line um, in uh, uh, in Scottish politics and has been since about 2011 or 2012 um, uh, for, you know, for, for, for at least a, a, a decade. And um, the problem with that is that all sorts of other things which need to happen in Scotland are not happening because the, um, uh, the, 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 the tribally divided nature of our politics is somehow preventing them from, from happening. Now, I want my kids to grow up in a Scotland which is more prosperous, with better schools, with better infrastructure. But Scottish prosperity is being held back Whatever your view about growth and trustonomics and all the rest of it, Scottish prosperity is being held back at the moment because of our constitutional obsession. The reform that is needed to Scottish schools to improve them, and they are they are in sore need of improvement, is being held back because of our tribal constitutional politics. And the the investment that we need in our infrastructure is being held back for the, the same reason. My most depressing day as an MSP was a debate about drug deaths. Scotland, and in particular Glasgow, the region I represented in the Scottish Parliament, has an appalling problem uh, with uh, drug deaths, a problem as grave as or graver than any other country in Europe. It is Scotland's national shame. And even a debate about drug deaths got um, uh, hijacked by what I am going to call the goddamn constitution. Uh, because uh, it became clear to um, uh, some MSPs that uh, one aspect of a potential solution to the drug deaths problem, namely safe consumption facilities, was reserved under the Misuse of Drugs Act and that therefore was Westminster's fault rather than Hollywood's fault. And the, 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 the debate that should have had absolutely nothing whatever to do with the Constitution got hijacked by that. So here's, a, here's an example of a, of a really important matter of social policy that uh, Jim in the Labour Party and Stephen in the SNP and uh, and me in the Conservative Party, just about still in the Conservative Party, ought to be able to agree on, but which the Constitution got in the way of. And, yeah. and, and I, I am I am desperate for a Scottish politics that moves beyond that tribal division. And I do not think that that is going to be possible while we still think about uh, independence as something which can be delivered only uh, in a 51-49 referendum, right? Oh, because it is the politics of the referendum that has divided Scottish society. And one of the things that I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, and if I'm mistaken about this, Stephen, please correct me, but one of the things I think Stephen has said is that we should begin to think about how we can uh, move forward in our Scottish political conversation without thinking about it in the binary terms of a referendum. I think, yeah, I mean, Stephen, you've used it. Thanks, Adam. You, you've used the phrase, uh, the phrase de-escalation of the, the constitutional conflict and, and certainly advocated moving towards compromise. So, yeah, I'll, uh, please do come back and say a bit more about that. Jim, you wanted to come in. 
Yeah, I think that for, and so we're talking more about the politics now, but for elements within the SNP, um, every, it's like the old phrase about to a hammer every problem is a nail. And no matter what the issue, the SNP are the hammer, and no, no matter what the issue, no matter how complicated or how tangential, it is the nail of independence. And so that that's that frustrates, and I'm sure there are people on the other side who take as partisan a view. I hear less of them because, bluntly, under a Conservative government, it's quite hard. This Conservative government, it's quite hard to make an argument that the union in and of itself is the means to social justice. Whereas we hear that often about the case for independence. I think what worries me, though, to be reflective is that if the court does um, say that it's within the power of the Scottish Parliament, and I, I don't want to tempt us into a, an additional conversation, but it does throw up tests about the Welsh government, the Welsh Parliament, the Northern Ireland Assembly. We have obviously Sinn Féin as the largest party. We're possibly going to have another election there. If the issues of the future of the union are no longer the primary, no, the powers are no longer primarily held or adjudicated to be exclusively held in the UK Parliament, that opens up a whole series of precedents in other parts of the United Kingdom, possibly in terms of the politics and independence and other movements. The last thing I'd say is that for those who, I'm not a unionist incidentally, I believe in the union, but I'm not a unionist, I'm a devolutionist. Right? So I'm, and devolution and independence are opposites. One's not a path to what to the other, but for those of us who are devolutionists, um, partisanly, it would suit if Nicola Sturgeon stuck to her October 23 timetable, because it's a crazy timetable. I mean, it's del undeliverable, but that's neither here nor there. But in a country where only one in three people actually want a referendum at the moment, it would be completely tonally out of keeping with where Scotland is. And the final point, I think whenever this referendum takes place, two things have to happen. If there is to be, if there is ever another referendum, those of us who are on the devolution side of the argument have to hear that this is the last one. I mean, or do we do we just do the day after the day after and assume that independence doesn't win through? Does the does the end does the ca campaign against that for a third and then a fourth referendum? Because at some point this has to be resolved. And the final point is that in the absence of absolute legal clarity, if it has no legal effect, what's to stop the sort of died in the wool unionists and passionate devolutionists just to opt out of it? In yeah, the same way think, that, yeah. in the same way that 1970, so for the last thing I'd say is that for those of you who don't follow it, 1973, Northern Ireland had a referendum. Yeah. The, the sort of the nationalist SDLP and the Republican Sinn Féin urged their supporters not to participate. It had a 98% outcome, but in a very low turnout. And yeah. We don't want any repeat of that in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Well, Adam has already, I think, raised the possibility of that kind of boycott, albeit that Aileen raised the, the counter argument against that. Uh, I want to bring in some questions from the audience. Um, so uh, we have a few and uh, please do submit some more if people have burning questions for our panel. Uh, Stephen, there's one that I want to put to you because you're you're named in uh, by the anonymous questioner. Um, question runs as follow, follows. If the Scottish government loses the case, we've just been talking about the other scenario, um, how do the 
panel see Sturgeon's plan to turn the next general election into a de facto referendum playing out? Um, and also, do you think she was actually paving the way for ditching this strategy this week in the conference speech when she didn't actually use those exact words? Um, Stephen, yeah, what's your take on that? I go back to the same starting principle. We are better moving forward in a way which gets us to 55, 60% uh, an identification of the settled will of the Scottish people. And my concern around the the plebiscite election approach is that it doesn't move us into that territory. It continues us in the path of two groups of 50, 50 each, uh, not really talking to each other, but talking past each other. Um, you know, this is an issue that is not going to go away. Uh, and so I think we have to, you know, look at serious ways of addressing it. I mean, I, I spoke about the Canadian uh, court and how they sort of pointed towards how how the politicians should respond uh, in a case. And I, I think we need something which points us in the direction of how politicians should respond. In the Quebec case, it was uh, a responsibility for politicians to negotiate. Uh, and so for me, we move forward in Scotland's constitutional journey through conversations, through both sides coming together and having a conversation. And that includes issues like you know, if you have a referendum at some stage, what does that mean for future referendums? So absolutely, there are rights on the side of the pro-UK side uh, not to have this as being a, a, a never-rendum. Um, so we, we have to have a, a, a conversation which recognises the rights and interests of both sides and draws on those to come to a solution which can uh, command the support of a significant majority of people in Scotland. So let's find out what the settled will of Scotland is, as we did in the 1990s. And in order to do that, we have to have a conversation. We have to have a mechanism put in place where Labour politicians, SNP politicians, Conservative politicians, UK and Scottish politicians are willing to sit down and talk about what sort of uh, relationship do we want to have in the future. Uh, for me, I mean, I, I disagree with Jim that devolution and independence are, 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 are opposites. Uh, I think they are different, but they are different in terms of states. Uh, for me, I was happy to back devolution because it was about giving Scotland more independence over areas like the health service. Uh, and I think we can have more independence in other areas as well. So for me, the, the, the question is how independent do we want to be? and how much of a relationship do we want to have with the rest of the UK? And I think we can find a place uh, when, we're, when we're asking those questions that has support of not 50-50, but you know, 60%, 65%, as we had back in the 1990s. Thanks. OK, uh, another question from uh, Michael. Uh, Aileen, I might come first to you on this one. Um, so Michael says, I'm a Scot born in Edinburgh. Um, I've always lived in the UK, first in Scotland, but now in England. Why don't I get a vote in any referendum about whether Scotland should stay in the UK? Well, we know why in legal terms, but I guess there's an interesting question of principle there. Um, I mean, you now work in Durham. I think maybe you're still resident in Scotland, so I'm not sure whether this is the situation you find yourselves in. But yeah, I mean, if in the event that a referendum takes place, what's your view on the franchise, the related questions about identity and, and who should be part of this 
decision? Yeah, I mean, this is a question that comes up uh, comes up quite often, and and uh, you're right. I do work in Durham, but I still live in Scotland. But in 97, at the time of the devolution referendum, I was living in in Bristol and, and didn't have a vote, despite uh -huh. being passionately interested because I was a passionate devolutionist, and and I still am very strongly. Uh, in favour of devolution. Um, I think that the, the difficulty for any sort of expat vote is it comes down to questions of of definition. You know, what degree of connection do you have to have with um, with 